Hi everyone and welcome to Spark Leadership. I'm Wendy Tepiso Maledu, a senior behavioral scientist at Coach Hub and the host of this show. Today on the show, we're going to challenge norms and advocate for change within the coaching industry. We're going to take a critical look at the coaching ecosystem through the lens of racial equity and justice with my guest and self-proclaimed compassionate disruptor, Charmaine Rocher. Charmaine has been developing thinking around coaching for social justice and enjoys convening spaces for challenging conversations. Her podcast, Speak Up, Speak Out, is one such place and other is the community of practice and inquiry that she founded called the Philosopher's Stone Collective. Charmaine is the co-author of a recent report on the topic of racial justice, equity and belonging in the coaching spaces, alongside my previous guest, Jonathan Passmore. Today, I'll be discussing this research paper with her. A warm, warm welcome to the show, Charmaine. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you. I must say, I love how you introduce yourself on your podcast, Speak Up, Speak Out, when you call yourself a compassionate disruptor. Do you mind elaborating on it for our listeners? What do you mean when you say you are a compassionate disruptor? Yeah, I think it first came to me as a way of describing my I suppose what I what I feel I bring as a facilitator of people development um, human development is the ability to sit with discomfort sometimes provoke it if I think we're in a safe space a space where people are willing to step out of shame and guilt in order to actually have a conversation, you know, dropping defences in order to have a conversation. The climate for conversation is very difficult at the moment, I think, you know, with all the culture wars, the identity politics. We need facilitators who can open up these spaces to just, for us to be able to just sit with each other as human beings and talk, listen, be present with each other. Thank you for sharing this. So in our conversation today, we're looking into the report that you and Jonathan Passmore wrote on racial justice, equity and belonging in coaching. But before we dive into the conversation, a standing feature of our show is that we ask our guests to share one interesting or fun fact about themselves. So could you please share with our audience something interesting or a fun fact about yourself? Yeah, my degree is in drama and theatre arts. Um, at the end of my degree, I decided to become a teacher rather than a writer and director, which is was my original ambition. So because I gave up that ambition in order to teach, I sort of dabble every now and then in, in amateur dramatics. And one of the best roles I played was as a femme fatale <laughs> in a Neil Laboute play, a very manipulative young woman, very much not like me, can I say. <laughs> Awesomeness! You know, I also started out studying dramatic arts. <laughs> so yeah, one of the questions that you ask your guests on your podcast is about their genesis in coaching. And I'd love to ask you the same. Please share with us your genesis as a coach. Yeah, well, I had a 
29-year career as an educator. I started teaching in the 80s, 1984. And when I decided to leave that career, you know, I was searching around for a second career because I wasn't ready to to give up work. I was in I was in my 50s, early 50s, giving away my 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 age here, but there you go. Uh, I'm not ashamed of my age. Um you know, I thought essentially, what am I about? What am I about? I'm about developing people. That is my superpower, if you like. So I dabbled in coaching. When I say dabbled, I mean, I wasn't trained as a coach, but I held the title on many occasions. It was something that happened in education. There was a big drive to to introduce coaching into education in the, the mid 2000s. And, you know, I grabbed that with both hands and I loved the whole concept of coaching. So when I actually joined um, Warwick University to do their postgraduate diploma, the difference between what I thought coaching was and <laughs> the training that I received, there was just light years difference. And I just totally and utterly fell in love with, with coaching. However, I developed a more critical lens towards this profession, which I love. I still love it. I began to think about the difference between what I was experiencing as as a coach working with educators and the public discourse around well-being in education. There was a disjunct for me. So what the discourse was saying is that workload, the intense workload was creating a well-being crisis. Teachers were leaving the profession within the first four years there was high levels of burnout amongst leaders, et cetera, et cetera. And what we needed to do was reduce the workload. However, in coaching individuals, what I saw was more of an existential crisis, that they were questioning the purpose that they were being called to serve as educators in contrast to the, their motivation for joining the profession. So they joined the profession very much with sort of social justice and empowerment values in trying to empower young children to be the you know the best they could be to be global citizens to be independent learners and they were working in an education system that was commodifying education turning it into a unit of value used to measure teacher effectiveness in a way that conflicted with the motivations that brought teachers not all teachers some teachers didn't feel this way but the ones who were representative of the well-being crisis felt this way that they felt there was this what I've come to call ethical stress when I say I've come to to call it that it's a term that came from the research of someone called Jane Fenton the neoliberalization of workplaces has created this this ethical stress in those professionals who see their values as being in conflict with neoliberal performative values which become a form of oppression for people who have social justice values. And I began to think that coaching maybe was more serving the neoliberalism in the workplace, helping to get people to conform to the performance demands rather than challenging those and actually addressing some of the issues that were causing this ethical stress for the people I was coaching. So this is part of my genesis as to the sort of coach I am now, which is a coach that's more challenging some of the norms of coaching rather than just um, celebrating them, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Thank you for sharing the journey with us. 
and sharing how you got to the point where you are now challenging the norms of coaching. This is indeed an interesting journey and informative one. And I think you're really pioneering in that space. So I'd like us to dig deep into the research that you did for this report. And my first question is, what led you to this research? How did this research come about? Yeah, well, that's a bit of a story. Um, I was already two years into my PhD journey. So because of that raised awareness about the way in which some of the norms of coaching conflict with what I felt were client and my coaching needs, I decided to do a PhD. And my PhD question um, is, what are the ethics of coaching for social change in oppressive contexts? And the oppressive context that I had in mind at that point was the education system and what it meant to coach in order to challenge some of the, the, the politics of coaching in the education system um, to expose those politics and, and make that part of the conversation about what the purpose of coaching is in that context. I'd started to collect some data but was kind of to feel, well, I'm not really sure if the coaches I'm talking to actually get what I'm <laughs> what I'm trying to do. Very much they were representing, if you like, the pressures to conform to the system and a system that was using coaching a very positivist way, which is just to help people to adapt to the system. And they, they were very much trapped in that that um, dynamic, didn't really have a lens that stood outside that. So I was beginning to feel a bit frustrated. And then um, I connected with Jonathan on LinkedIn and I sent him a message saying, um, hi, Jonathan, nice to connect. Are there any opportunities to collaborate? And it turned out that he was um, looking for a researcher for a research project on anti-racism in coaching. This conversation happened in August 2020, which is six months after the COVID pandemic was declared and three months after the killing of George Floyd. So this conversation was in the air. You know, if you, if you were following this on LinkedIn coaches were beginning to say, well, where are the black coaches in our profession? They were beginning to ask questions about representation. Black coaches were coming out and saying, well, yeah, I'm here. Because up to that point, the coaches that were in the profession hadn't been very visible. But there was also this sense that they were not well represented. So although there were black coaches in the industry, they weren't very visible and they weren't highly represented, certainly not in terms of the leadership structure of the industry. And it became an open conversation. It was open, a conversation on LinkedIn. And Jonathan wanted to do some research on this because, strangely enough, unlike other helping professions, coaching hadn't really researched the issue of the impact of systemic and structural racism on the dynamics between coach and coachee. And neither had it researched the way in which coaching itself reflects the systemic patterns of underrepresentation that are visible in other sectors of the economy. So these were two research gaps. And not only is it as the research stands on its own as a piece of research, but it's really added traction to my PhD as well, because the data will serve a dual purpose. It, it served the purpose of producing this report, and it will also serve the, the larger inquiry of my, my PhD. I 
hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shamaine Rocher about challenging the norms of coaching and taking a critical look at the whole industry through the lens of racial equity. I asked Shamaine what for her is the main aim of the report. I think the main aim is to advocate for change. So that is why we produced a report that had a series of recommendations. There are 15 recommendations that address the coaching ecosystem, because this is not a report that primarily focuses on individual coaches. You know, we're not saying that the systemic and structural racism is about individuals. We're saying that it's a natural extension of structural dynamics in society that are reflected in the coaching industry. And it, we have an ethical responsibility to pay attention to it and to do something about it. So that is the predominant aim is to actually support change and to feed the need of a growing number of coaches who want to see their professional associations and their industry take this seriously because we should be role models. We are being called on to serve corporates who are taking on this agenda and trying to make progress. And if we're going to be critical friends in that process, we need to be taking it seriously in relation to our own um, industry as well. Otherwise, doesn't that somewhat undermine our credibility? Mm, that's a great insight there. And I want us to build on that. You already said that you hope that this research will ignite change and that there are recommendations you make in the report. Can you quickly talk about what kind of recommendations you make? These recommendations are the thin end of the wedge of the change journey that is required. These aren't sort of like rocket science recommendations. <laughs> They're the sorts of recommendations that have been around in the DNI space for decades. Some of them, in terms of the way in which they've been implemented in the past, have not really made much progress. So while I'm fully supportive of the recommendations, obviously, you know, Jonathan and I wrote them together. <laughs> I'm also saying that the recommendations need to be carried out in a context where we're not just trying to tick boxes, put on a, a good face, add colour to coaching pools that aren't very diverse. We need to do something more fundamental than that. Just adding more brown faces and black faces in a coaching pool in and of itself does not shift the overall dynamic. So just to speak briefly to the recommendations, they fall into um, categories addressing different stakeholder groups. So there's a global coaching community, education providers, professional bodies, coach service providers, coaches, mentors and supervisors, industry leaders. And those are the sort of the categories which we address. And we start with the big ecosystem and end with individuals, because I think that is the right way round. You know, we are enculturated as coaches into an ecosystem and we adopt the values and the norms of that ecosystem as our professional identity. And my challenge and Jonathan's challenge is to that professional identity. So in order to work for equity, we need a system that is focused on equity and we don't believe that system currently does have that focus. It might do in words and um, I was going to say intent. 
and maybe to be generous, I should say, intent. But when it comes to actually acknowledging the inherent issues in the coaching industry itself, that is not yet wholly visible. I'd like us to shift gears. One of the findings in the research is that you identify an attitude of colorblindness across the coaching ecosystem. What does this mean and what impact does color have in coaching? I know it's a big one, but I think this is very important. Please share your perspective on this. Yeah, and I think I would slightly reframe the question if you if you don't mind, because I don't think that it's colour itself which is the main issue. Critical race theory and decoloniality were the, the theoretical lenses that were used to an- analyse the data. And, you know, in, initially the, the civil rights movement in, in America um, did lead to some reforms. And the way in which systemic and structural racism sustains itself, according to critical race theory, is through evolving mutating a bit like a virus so when there is resistance when you put up some resistance to this virus it mutates in order to sustain itself and one of the mutations that has been identified in the research is color blindness so when there was this sweep of civil rights legislation in the united states that was seen as the answer to the race issue and they began to talk about a post a post-racial era. The same thing happened in Europe. You know, there were a set of um, equal rights legislation across Europe and they adopted a similar position that now that this equal rights legislation is being passed, we're in a post-racial era. And of course, (laughs) that was totally blown out of the water. You know, the, the ending of apartheid in South Africa was also part of the process of saying, well, now that apartheid's been dismantled, we're in a post-racial era. You know, that was also part of that narrative that was adopted. So that's one level of colorblindness. It was a conscious adaptation of racism in order to undermine the argument for further reform and social transformation in order to remove systemic and structural racism. However, the other side of that is that liberals adopted colour blindness as a well-meaning but misplaced way of showing their, let's say, their allyship with the struggle against racism. They thought that by saying, well, we don't see difference, we don't see colour, we don't see race, that they were in solidarity. But actually the impact is the opposite because what it does is it renders the inequalities and the impacts of those inequalities invisible. It denies them. It also denies the fact that we have, and I will speak personally here, have adopted a positive racial identity as a form of resistance. So I remember the point in my own history when I became a black woman. You know, I wasn't born a black woman. I chose to identify myself as a black woman during the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. And I started to read the work of Steve Biko and he talks about black consciousness and the importance of black consciousness, because you stop being a victim at the point at which you recognise the nature of the oppression that you are under. Once you start to recognise it and resist, you stop being a victim. And positive racial identity is about that. That's what that is about. 
is about saying, I am not a victim of this. I'm defining myself in relation to this structural misuse of power and I'm defining myself. So it denies also that process of resistance. So that is why the, the report calls for, we use the term racial consciousness, not in the sense that we believe that there is any real um scientific basis to race. I, I don't believe that. and The report doesn't take that position. It's an acceptance of the historical reality of the racialization of people as based on colour, from white to black. White people have been racialized in that process as well. So being colourblind ignores that historical and that lived reality, that present, very present lived reality. Thanks for sticking around with us so far. This is insightful and I dare say necessary conversation with my guest and compassionate disruptor, Charmaine Rocher. As we come to the end of the show, I wanted Charmaine to address organizations out there that want to create a coaching culture. I asked Charmaine, what are some of the things that organizations can adopt to start igniting that change towards racial justice and equity in the coaching practice? I think the most important um, thing that organisations have to recognise is that there are systemic barriers to the full inclusion and belonging for people um, who don't fit the norm, whatever that norm might be. So if you're a woman um, working in a corporate environment and you're facing issues to do with patriarchy, is it recognised that patriarchy might be an issue in in the organisation? If you're someone who is neurodiverse and you're struggling to get promotion because your needs are not being recognised, does the organisation recognise that they, there may be systemic barriers to neurodiverse people who have massive talents to bring, making progress in their organisation? If you're um, a black male um, who wants a leadership position who feels constrained by having to fit a particular pattern of behavior because of the the you know the the sort of um stereotypes of black men so i think what organizations need to be doing is not just focusing on the individual and helping them to adapt to the corporate environment but to actually ask questions about you know what kind of structural issues do we need to address in order to create cultures in which people feel that they belong there, that they that they don't have to wear a white mask in order to fit in? Thank you for that. As we wrap up the show, I'd love to hear your predictions. What does the coaching industry look like in five years or 10 years from now in terms of racial equity and justice? I hate predictions. <laughs> you know, if coaching is to continue to be energetic, um, creative, and adopts in reality what it asserts for itself in theory, which is it creates change, then it needs to embrace the full multiplicity of the different ways in which coaching has emerged, not just the Western, the dominant Western narrative about coaching. It needs to embrace the full diversity of narratives about coaching and ways in which coaching is being used 
for emancipatory and liberatory purposes. And it's been happening under the radar with coaches who have been subversively working, <laughs> working away in different ways, abandoning certain norms, but not talking about it. And I know this from the conversations I've been having with people. This, if you like, this subversive work will become the norm. Coaching will be serving, openly serving certain values that we need to foreground as human beings in order to continue to earn our right to live on this planet. I mean, we are on a trajectory for destruction at the moment in so many ways. You know, there are, there are existential questions faced and I think coaching can be on the side of providing the kind of um, humanity that is required to deal with these questions. That's my hope for coaching. I'm not sure if it's a prediction, but I think there's a lot of energy around that at the moment. And it is emerging. I think that that movement is emerging. The hope is good enough. The hope is good enough. I believe that coaching will indeed embrace the change it wants to create. Charmaine, thank you so, so much for your time and for raising your hand up to be the voice of positive change in our times. Thank you, Wendy. For me, this has been insightful. It's been reflective. It's been a comfortable discomfort, but also hopeful and inspiring to address these pressing issues of racial justice and equity within the coaching industry. Thanks for listening. I really hope you'll join me next time for my conversation with Ben Ranshaw, formerly a classical violinist. Ben now plays a different tune, getting the best out of people. We talked about his latest book, Love, Work, and how we can reframe the great resignation. From everyone at Coach Hub Studios, have a wonderful day. Happiness. <laughs>